I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Every single scene has some sort of Easter egg or some sort of bigger picture thing that I'm trying to deliver. And if no one's getting it, and I'm being, you know, too, too much of a smarty pants. You don't own me, I'm not your property. So take a shifty little bitty eyes of me. You got it, but thought it was stupid. All those things, they hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Eyes on Gilead, our weekly podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. There is a lot going on in this show and we think it helps to talk it out after every episode of The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 premieres at SBS and at SBS On Demand. But we've also got a special episode for you today because we are joined, again, by the creator of The Handmaid's Tale, creator and showrunner and executive producer and any other titles you want to throw, Bruce Miller. Bruce Miller is joining us for a very special episode of Eyes on Gilead to answer all of our pressing questions. I'm Fiona Williams and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS and I'm joined by my colleagues and fellow resistors, Hayley Island of SBS On Demand. Hi. And Natalie Hambly of SBS Voices. Hello. And a little news, we are going to be having a live event in Sydney to mark the uh, end of season three of The Handmaid's Tale. So we'd love you to come along and uh, stick around till the end. We'll, uh, we'll have a bit more detail about that. So... Let's get into it. We have got a lot of burning questions for Bruce Miller. Uh, you may remember he joined us last year, about this time as well in the season. Yeah, so we wanted to have him back and ask some of the pressing questions about season three and where the hell is all this going? So let's do it. Bruce, you're on. Hi. Hi, Bruce. It's Fiona Williams here. Hi. Um, hi. <laughs> Welcome back to Eyes on Gilead. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, no, honestly, thank you so much for your time. You may have noticed we're obsessed with your show. And um, yeah, we, we've got a few things to, to ask you. Well, I'm, that's why I'm here. I'm obsessed with it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're among friends. All right. Well, well, let's get into it. I guess first question, season three, we're sort of towards the tail end of season three now. This one has felt different in the way the story has been told. We're getting a lot more little character spotlights, maybe. What was your approach going into this one? Certainly coming off the back of the big finale from two. But yeah, what, what's been your sort of plan for the way that three's unfolded? Well, you know, I kind of go into them all just starting with June's journey and kind of building out from there. What's her character arc? What's her journey for the season? Um, so, you know, if the first season was her figuring out just how to survive um, and uh, how possibly to retain some sense of who she is and survive. And then the second season's about kind of motherhood. The, thir the third season for June was about kind of rebellion, about a become, you know, what does it actually mean to rebel? Once you say, oh, I want to be a rebel, how do you actually do it? You know, you can't get rebelling for dummies. I mean, she can't, she just has to figure it out. So I thought, you know, oh, it's such nice talk, you know, in a writer's room about, okay, she's going to be a rebel, but what the fuck does that mean? So that's what it was about. Understanding really on the ground, what does it mean moment by moment to try to do that and how dangerous is it and how, how many big, huge chances do you have to take and how much on the job learning are you going to be able to do before you get killed? Sure. Interesting they sort of bring that up because... June was sort of flirting with death 
a lot this season. But as part yeah. of that, she also um, she seems to have been instrumental in causing the death of other people. And she has sort of, for the first time ever, has seemed a bit unlikable at some times. Was that part of the plan or was that a surprise audience reaction? You know, it's never part of the plan for me to kind of make the audience feel a certain way about the character. People always talk about, oh, you know, is this person being redeemed? Or And I never think about it that way. I just think about what would June do and whether it's what would June do based on what I know about June or what I know about myself in the real world. And, and you know, whether you like her or I like her is kind of secondary to just making sure what she does makes sense for June. So sometimes I'm shocked that people think what she's done is, dumb or smart or dangerous or not dangerous or disappointing to them that they, they feel like she's not being brave enough or too brave or foolhardy or what have you. But that's always a surprise because I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm not thinking about my opinion about what she does. I'm just trying to think about what she would do. Sure. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the audience, they are quite tough on June in, in a lot of the feedback. And, and we all wonder how much you, you listen to the feedback that's out there in the tweets and, you know, the podcasts and social media? Well, I, you know, I listen a lot. I mean, I like hearing people converse about the show. I also, just on a really basic level, I have to see what people pick up and what they don't. Because, you know, you try to fill it with absolutely every single scene has some sort of Easter egg or some sort of bigger picture thing that I'm trying to deliver. And if no one's getting it, and I'm being, you know, too too much of a smarty pants. Then I have to change, and and because you know I'm I'm not shoot, shooting in a way that the audience is seeing. I'm either being too subtle or too heavy-handed. And then the other thing is really feeling when I missed when I missed when I had to explain something that I didn't. Where people are lost, mm-hmm. um, and that certainly happens. You know, we play it pretty close to the bone in terms of explaining almost nothing. I like it better mm-hmm. as a viewer to try to figure it out on my own, and also from the shows from June's point of view, she doesn't know very much at all, you know, and it's not a place where she would find out, oh, you figure it out when you check Twitter or you figure it out when you check the news. She has no idea, you know, what's going on, you know, 50 feet outside of her field of vision. And she almost has no way to find out. So in that way, you, you kind of want to keep the show restricted. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so restricted that your audience is lost. So that I'm definitely, I always balance out. I, and I love listening to the podcast. I listen to your podcast. There's a handful mm-hmm. of others I listen to. I like, you know, first of all, it's the only people who care as much as I do. We do. You know, we really do. Pay attention as well. <laughs> it would be cruel you know, to taunt us. You know, really pick it apart and kind of think about why, which is very, very fun for me. And, uh, you know, on the other side of the coin, you know, if those people pick it apart and pay attention and either I've led you guys down the primrose path or – you got it, but thought it was stupid. All those things, you know, I listened to. They hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, right, because it's a little bit embarrassing for us because we are just going wild with our predictions. And, of course, we're quite wrong a lot of the time, I think. But you did mention the Easter eggs that you drop every episode, and sometimes we miss them. So is there is there one that was dropped this season that we all missed? Not that I can think of. Um, I was actually away... On vacation, I didn't. I, the, the episode I was really curious about your reaction to was the one in the hospital. Mm. It's such a where she's stuck in the hospital the whole time. It's such a weird episode, and you know, you know, so much of the voiceover is you know pulled from different parts of the book, and you know, it's just it's a weird. It's one of our kind of only only with Elizabeth Moss can you do an episode like that. 
Um, but I'm trying to think of some, you know, because the way that I kind of like indicate the wider Gilead world is by having one look or one ring through someone's mouth, and you assume everybody who's got their mouth covered has a ring, but I only showed one, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, all of those things of indicating the wider world, but no, I'm completely stumped. I can't think of anything I hid for, <laughs> for your benefit that you didn't find. <laughs> Thank you for saying I've actually noticed that some of our fans have actually disagreed with us on our opinion on that episode. So it really was um, quite interesting to see how different people's opinions are. And on of Matthew, you know, she's been a curiosity for us this year. And, you know, we'd like to just get your take on this season and and particularly that character because she was so inscrutable and her motivations were unclear and then all of a sudden she was gone. We've sort of seen her as a little bit of an Eden replacement this season in like she's got a deeper meaning, but at the risk of spoilers. Are we going to discover a bit more about her posthumously like we did with Eden? Uh, maybe. You know, <laughs> Ashley, Ashley Lanthrop, who, who was the character, did an amazing job. Mm. I mean, and, and it's so hard to be dropped into a show anyway, and this show is even harder. You know, you got to wear the funny costume and you got to, you know, speak in the funny way and it's Elizabeth Moss and, you know, it's all of those things. And she was wonderful. But for me, the way the character played was basically she was a a vessel of Lydia. Lydia says, here, go spy on June. And boy, you know, she, June just turned the tables on her and drove her crazy. I mean, just, you know, kind of pushed her till she snapped. So she was a kind of a pawn in the power struggle between Lydia and June. And when June first started, you know, when she, when she started to see her as a real live person, it was a little too late. You know, she had already kind of, you know, you know started to plant the seeds of, of her recognizing this horrible place in this, you know, and being, you know, not, not as much like Eden, that she wasn't able to come to terms with it, you know, once June started whispering in her ear, it was, that was the kind of the idea behind the character. And, and also, I just, I liked true believer, you know, I don't know that you, you need someone who buys in completely to the Gilead system. And I don't think she did. I think she bought into a way to survive the Gilead system, but I don't know where her faith and her heart way, certainly. But, you know, for me, where that character came from was, well, if I was Lydia, what would I do? I want to keep June working, but I don't trust her. So I would assign someone with her who I felt was incorruptible. And boy, was she wrong. Yeah, right. (laughs) And and since we're talking about her, I mean, you know, you'd you'd be aware you've you've got um, quite a backlash this year about the season's lack of focus on characters of colour and in particular of Matthew, you know, casting an African-American woman in, in that role. Can we speak to that? Sort of, has that surprised you? That response, or do you cop it? Um, yeah, what, what's your what's your response to that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I we didn't cast her. I mean, she wasn't chosen, written as a character of color. She was just written as a handmaid, and Ashley was amazing. <laughs> um, so uh, the 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 complications of of trying to deal with race on this show are the complications of trying to understand how Gilead deals with race, which is such an extrapolation of thinking like, you know, what, what would Gilead be like after the birth rate fell 98%? You know, what would the world be like? Would, you know, how would people's opinion towards children of different colors, having children of different colors in their house change? But I'm no, I'm no expert on race or its portrayal on television, certainly not its portrayal in speculative fiction like this. So once again, I just try to follow the story as much as possible. And, you know, for Ashley, in some ways, she was you know, she she played a huge role in the in the year, um, and um, you know, I I thought she was a really interesting and substantial 
character, so I'm glad we had her. Um, but, you know, I don't think she was where she was or met her fate because of her race. I may be, you know, not seeing something, but I didn't think that that was why she lived or died. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all uh, very keen to see more stories from the women of colour in this series. Bring it on, Rita and Moira. <laughs> Rita and Moira, yes. No, absolutely. Um, we've also noticed a big change in Fred this season. He appears to be more attuned to Serena's wants and needs. Is that uh, at least partial guilt at standing idly by as she had a finger lopped off last season, or is it something else? You know, at least, you know, if I was going to simplify it, absolutely. I mean, that's, he scared himself. He wanted to be tough and upright and, and also be himself and, you know, be a Gilead guy and be supportive of his wife. And then in the end, he, you know, the look on his face when they dragged his wife away to cut her finger off, I think he scared the shit out of himself. All of a sudden, he saw himself in a way that he never wanted to be. And so what he really wants to be is her loving husband. She's, in his eyes, amazing, super amazing, and he you know, really wants to... He was very happy before basking in her reflected glow, so I think he'd love to be back there. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's scared himself and said, I don't want to be that person. So what person do I want to be? And I think that he's committed to being a, you know, the kind of husband... They had a, some sort of functional relationship before Gilead, and he... You know, that's the way he sees their marriage, and if he sees them kind of on a sidetrack for now, he certainly sees that as their home base. So, I, uh, you know, and the way Joe has played it, it's just remarkable that you can despise and fear and revile Fred, but also see what he's doing in a very human way, the way, the way you guys just described it, and that's just the genius of Joe. Mm. And on him, we've seen episode 11 now, so this is probably a moot point now, but um, on the Winslow-Fred dynamic and the way everyone ran to, to yeah. read all the overtures in that room, certainly <laughs> in the pool room, the pool scene, yeah. um, what gives? Was it alpha male bullshit or was there some homoerotic overtones? And how much was written and how much did Christopher Maloney sort of <laughs> wing it? Well, you know, we the scripts, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the scripts, they're super spare. I mean, we, oh, we yes. definitely indicated it in this direction. Um, for me, and I know, you know, we had conversations with Chris, but you want to leave lots of room for someone as amazing as Chris Maloney and, and Joe to play around with scenes like that. He's a creature of power. So anything that he does, that's the motivation. The motivation is not sex or sexual preference or having lots of children or being a dad or having the biggest house. He doesn't give a shit about any of those things. They're just expressions of power. So what he's doing to Fred and it may end up in a, in a relationship between the two of them. But what he's doing is asserting dominance. Mm. Yeah. I can do this to you. And not only can I do this to you, I can do this to you and I don't worry that you're going to say something. I'm, look how powerful I am. And so that's what everything with Winslow is, is about power. And, you know, certainly Fred in that scene is a little back on his heels. So it works quite well. <laughs> Yeah, it does the job. While we're spotlighting individual characters, I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for the Aunt Lydia backstory. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting two and a half seasons for that. Um, (laughs) How intense was the pressure? And it's impossible for me. You could you could have twenty five Aunt Lydia. I mean, you know, you want to you want to show some sort of piece of her past that makes that makes sense and adds to your understanding. But nobody has a moment from their past that helps you that will make you understand who they are. None of us do. And certainly Lydia doesn't. And so it's hard because you kind of, 
you have to pick between the 97 things you'd like to show. <laughs> Which one story are you going to tell? And it's very hard, especially when you have Ann Dowd, who can do the 97 things. Mm. You know, all of them would be fascinating. So, it you know, it it is... <laughs> It's as frustrating that we don't have enough real estate on the television show to cover as many backstories as we would like. Right. Um, but, you know, you only have a certain number of minutes. Sure. I mean, if you did want to drop 96 more, I, <laughs> I'd be all for that. <laughs> We're here for the Aunt Lydia season. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I would die, but you, you, you guys would be happy. Yeah, I mean, worth it. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> and oh, the tapes, introducing June making a tape this season, that, that was a wonderful nod to the book. Should we operate on the assumption that any chance she gets, she's ducking back down into the basement, taping over the mixtapes? Is she making more? Um. You know, those are a nod to the book, and they have come up naturally, but we've always used that. I mean, there's such an interesting kind of connection with low and high technology in Gilead that, you know, they have drones, and yet they, you know, no one's carrying a cell phone. And so just that feeling, but also there's something that the low techness of it, especially as a communication device, is amazing. In the book, they actually had to build a machine to read the tapes in the future when they found the the cassettes buried under a cabin. So the technology was even beyond them, but it had still survived. So there's something I love about that because it's kind of the same thing about paper, that, you know, we have lots of different technologies, but boy, paper lasts a long time. It's been around a really long time, and it's a good thing to write on. So it was kind of that, you know, sometimes the old ways are the best. But it is a nod to the book, and there was something so magical about them being able to talk, even in this weird, stilted way, June and her and her husband. And I wanted, I was hoping, hoping, hoping to find a way to make it private. And that's where that came from. I just love the fact that she's taping over another tape that was a gift to kind of express from one person to another how they felt about each other. But Lizzie killed me in that scene. I mean, I've never seen a performance like that. Sitting, she's sitting alone in a basement holding a tape recorder in her lap. Mm. That's what she's doing. Yeah, it brought me to tears. And, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I'm speaking about that. She has to have the ability to speak in order to record those tapes, but it very much looks like that ability might be taken away soon. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the rings that we saw in Washington? Well, there seems like, uh, I mean, they're horrible. Um, uh, And, you know, they are kind of inspired. It just seems like a natural slippery slope for for you know, you have these women. You bring them in your house. You have all these rules. They're supposed to stay up in the room. Most times, you never see them. What's next? You know, how do you make them more? Because so much of this season is about how they're. It's it's a constant reductive process. You know, where you end up just being poor of Matthew in her bed, just being a womb to mm-hmm. have the. The, the child. And so I think the ring is just another example of that, which is taking away your intellectual self, your human self, and just turning you more and more into, uh, you know, a, walk, a, a, a vagina furniture, I think is what Margaret called it once. They may not be Margaret, so please don't call me, but we might have called them. But, you know, being, being more and more just, you know, a non-entity. So, yes, I mean, I think that's the big fear is that, and I think for me, the interesting thing is that, of course, there'd be differences in terms of level of conservatism and level of, of, of strictness in different parts of the country, just like there are now. It's a very big country. 
and there wouldn't be uniformity. But I like the idea. For me, it makes me feel better that it seems like Lydia's on June's side, that she doesn't want... She's very invested in the idea that her charges are you know, have the best life they possibly can have. So she thinks of them as human beings. She doesn't think of them as, as vessels. And so I like the fact that I feel like we have a defender in, in Lydia. So if those are going to come, they're going to come over, over her objection, not with her support, I think. Alongside that sort of clue that the conservatism in Gilead is growing, we've had other signs that there's unrest in Chicago um, and that the borders are weakening. Can you tell us, is Gilead getting stronger or is it getting weaker? Uh, I think it's getting older. You know, it, it's it's getting out of that first phase of being born, and it's getting, you know, it's turning into a place with some slightly more mature problems. It isn't just, you know, establishing the country and writing all these rules down. And now there's, you know, you know, problems that are tenacious, and those are differences of opinion about how to rule rule places. But also, it's about rebellion, and I think that, you know, it it, it played for a nice counter story to me that there was rising rebellion in Chicago, that there are these people out here who have been there since the beginning. They just have been intractable. They've been unable to push these rebels out of Chicago. And meanwhile, June is building her own rebellion. So on the one hand, you're thinking, oh my God, she's so, you know, why isn't she doing more? And then you think, well, they just sent the fucking army to Chicago. <laughs> well, you know, they're going to squash her like a bug. You know, so you've got she doesn't even conceive of being in the same league as this huge thing that's happening across the country, and neither do we. But they're all just different kinds of rebellion, and that's really what the season's about. And so on the one hand, you really want June to do something. On the other hand, you don't want her to do too much because you see what happens when they pay attention to you. When they pay attention to you, you know, 400 women end up in a jail, in, you know, in cages. So mm-hmm. it's not, not the nicest place to make a ruckus. Yeah, right. And with this show, you know, it's incredible synergy to real world events. I'm just wondering with the way the story has evolved this time, are you sort of putting a little message out there that the resistance isn't going to happen overnight? Sort of, you know, at the end of every episode, we get that June Zoom shot and we all think, okay, next one means it's on. (laughs) Um, But has this sort of been a little message for us to all cool our jets and, you know, understand that these things take time? Well, for me, that's the message, definitely, for, for me, is because I think, you know, television has kind of sold everybody a bill of goods that, you know, the, they've taught everybody that the exception is the rule, that one person, you know, you know, this extraordinary moment at this crossroads of history can make this huge difference. Yes, that's true. Sometimes, <laughs> most of the time, people grind it out. And I think that it's, it's, you know, incumbent on us as people who are making television and Margaret, who created this character, to show a different kind of hero. I mean, people with June, people complain about the stuff that, you know, she doesn't do. Every day that she gets to the end of and she's still alive, that's a huge victory. And the fact that she's learned to navigate enough that she has some room to actually get some other things done is a miracle. But, you know, I do think it's a message that, like anything else, rebellion isn't easy. You have to figure out how to do it. And, you know, our conversations in the writer's room really came from that place of like, you know, here we are, we're we're living in a very turbulent political time. There's certainly people, you know, who want to, who want to speak out against the government in very loud ways. And once you sit down and say, okay, how do you do that? It becomes a lot harder. And so that's the lesson I was trying to at least do is show on our show, 
a different kind of hero, a much more real hero, the fact that she gets knocked on her ass over and over and over again. She has to do things that are horrible. And often she fails and fails and fails and still has to keep kind of belief that she's going to succeed. All of those things are not things we do very well. You know, the, you know, we do, we do, it's a lot easier to have someone come and you say, you know, you're the one, you live in a matrix, you know, let's just, you know, you're the, you're the one who's going to save us all. That's a lot easier, you know. No one's going to tell her she's the one. They're just telling her she's not the one, you know. Get out of the way, stop. So I think that, you know, in a real life way, we've seen so many people kind of try to get involved in politics and, and, and more involved in the world in a million different ways in the last few years. This is just showing that for her, this is what it would be like, you know, as close as we can figure out that she is trying really hard. She's much better at surviving and navigating the rules of Gilead. That's why she doesn't get smacked immediately. She's built allies and built a little space. But boy, you know, you don't see very many people bringing down the government of North Korea. You know, it's been there for a while. It's hard. Yeah. (laughs) Mike Barker said music is in the show is entirely your call and that the song decisions are often the most contentious decisions. So what goes into your choice of song and how many times does it change along the way? Wow, those are very good questions. Um, Barker just wants to blame me for, <laughs> for songs that you might not like. Um, uh, I, you know, from the very beginning, you know, I chose the songs and the, the songs, it's, it's simple to me. I'm trying to write the song that comes into June's head unbidden, that it's not the song you wish you were thinking about at that moment. It just happens to come there. And so that's why it's sometimes weird or offbeat or, you know, off angle or, or something that you never think you'd be thinking of. But boy, it's funny when it happens to come into her mind. Um, episode uh, nine is a really good example where she was in the hospital and she couldn't get the Belinda Carlisle song out of her head. <laughs> you know, most of what we tried to do, or my, my taste, my wife says, runs, I, I, I like forgotten earworms, something mm-hmm. that you don't ever think about, and then you hear it and you go, oh my God, I remember that song. Um, but you never would think about it otherwise. But for me, I'm just trying to have it be, help increase our sense of being part of June's point of view. So the music just ties into that. It's what, it's underlining what June is thinking often ironically or weirdly, um, you know, or some, you know, she's 90% scared and 10%, you know, looking at the camera going, do you really believe this place is the most absurd thing I've ever seen? You want to play the 10% that she really can't deny the fact that, boy, this is just, it's so weird. Do they really want to do this? This just seems so weird. So, you know, for that, it helps me connect. And also I just, in the world of, it's a, it's a rough world, and I think she finds a way to escape in kind of this this thing that that you know. I actually I'm I'm not super musical. I am uh, can't really remember the tune to anything. I don't really escape into music, but it's something I aspire for June to do. So you know, and there are there's a lot of contention around the music. Um, you know, almost every song I ever pick, everybody tells me. What are you doing? You're, you know, they're very nice and treat me like a mental patient. You're ruining the show. You can't possibly <laughs> think that's going to go there. And, and sometimes, you know, I change. And so, so some things drop in immediately out of the sky, like that's perfect. But it all comes together during the editing process. I try not to pick songs beforehand. I'm, I'm not trying to act to a song or to write to a song at all. So when we get into editing, 
I look at the sequences, and the editors often put songs in. They choose a song and put a song in to say, hey, this might be a good place for a song. And a lot of times those are what we end up using. So, and they aren't songs that I knew ahead of time or knew beforehand. So there's just as much music in the show that is new to me. But uh, I don't know. I think the music's cool. And if we're going to have music in the show, I would rather we figure out a way for it to help tell the story and tell us more about June and make us feel something as opposed to just be, you know, background that, you know, people don't even hear because they've seen so many television shows. Yeah, we prefer that too. Um, we're all dying to read The Testaments, obviously, which is coming in a couple of months. Have you read it yet? Oh, really? It's sitting on my table. <gasps> really? Stop. Well, why don't, we, why don't you just read it aloud? Yeah. We're, 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 we I have the time. Get my comfortable. phone over it, do you feel incredibly jealous? <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> well, um, give us a scoop. Is it going to be a TV show? Um, I haven't read it yet. Oh. <laughs> um, we... Uh, there's a, a couple of couple of reasons why, which are probably all very dull. Um, but um, you know, I just finished locking the last episode of last season, and so I didn't want to think about that while I was in the middle. You know, I'm still my head was still in the previous season, um, and that was one. And the other is I am sort of to very dyslexic, and it takes me forever to read a book. Um, and especially if I want to get anything out of it. So I needed to kind of block out, you know, I actually have to block out time to sit and read a book like this and, and, uh, and absorb it. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, I know it's weird considering what I do for a living, mm-hmm. but, but... Inspiring, <laughs> I would say, rather than weird. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it takes me a while to read something carefully. And so I'm sure Margaret's not sitting around waiting for my notes. <laughs> I'm sure she's doing fine, you know. Uh, but uh, no, I'm phone. very, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to to read it. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I first read the novel, the original novel, all I wanted was a sequel, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like it ends and you're like, what, what, what? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's um, which was one of the fun things about making a TV show because I got to guess about what might happen next. But when I initially was talking about season two, people were like, how could you continue that story? You know, we go beyond The Handmaid's Tale. It's you know, such a classic book. I was like, how could I not? If someone says, <laughs> you, you, all I wanted was the next chapter. You know, I was dying for the next chapter. And also if we had some, in some small way, kind of, you know, I know people were clamoring for a sequel. So whatever uh, caused Margaret to put pen to paper, whether it was slightly inspired by the fact that we were doing the show and every, so many people were talking about it, I'll happily you know, take that reason and, and devour the book like everybody else. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I cannot, I cannot wait to find out what happens to these people. I'm in exactly the same situation I was 35 years ago when I got the, when I was assigned the novel in college. <laughs> well, you're not rowing that boat alone. Yeah, we are. We are there with you. Look, Bruce Miller, thank you so much. It's such a treat to talk to you again. You know, you've been really generous with your time and we're loving your show and we want to see what happens next. We are on Tenderhooks. Thank you for, for joining us on Eyes on Um Well, thank you so much for the show and for your interest in all the conversation. I love listening to it. <laughs> thank you. You're too kind. See you later. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. 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 So that was Bruce Miller. A little intimidated by the fact that he listens to the show now. I'm just kind of thinking, oh shit, what do I say? But uh, that's extremely flattering too. And it would be cruel to taunt us. So I hope he was being honest. 
<laughs> and extremely jealous that he's got a copy of the Testaments. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We need to get onto that book. I feel like we could have Bruce on every week just that we could ask him a thousand questions. <laughs> you know, what were you thinking in this scene? What were you thinking in that scene? But um, um, I'm very grateful that we've got him for the. 20 or so minutes that we did. It was yeah. great. No, good stuff there. Yeah, really interesting. I can't wait to see how uh, he might or might not incorporate the Testaments into later seasons of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. It could go there. Right. <laughs> My feeling is it's just going to be completely different. I just think, mm. you know, Margaret has written so many books. I feel weird just calling her Margaret. Yeah, I know. Margaret. First name um, basis. <laughs> she's written so many books and so I just think that and her head just works so magnificently differently. So I'm sure she'll just take it off in a whole new direction and it will be standalone and separate and also brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, no, yeah. I, I'm not expecting a, one of those novelisation things to pick up. <laughs> the book well, because I'm always partly wondering, you know, I thought, would she at least have told him what's in the Testaments or where she's going with it to see whether they could incorporate it? But, you know, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe she has, maybe she hadn't. He sort of made it sound like he's had no discussions with her about it. So I guess now in my mind I'm thinking it's going to be a fabulous novel and completely different. Mm-hmm. So that one's out in September. So, yeah, cannot wait. Mm-hmm. On your point, Natalie, about the sequel, Margaret Atwood's done this before. I read Oryx and Crake earlier this year and she followed it with a few other novels, including The Year of the Flood, which weren't sequels but were set in the same world. So they could both mm-hmm. coexist without really interacting with each other. So that might be what she's doing here where we'll get a story from you know, another part of Gilead that has nothing to do with June, but will be in that world. Works for Star Wars. They've got all the spin-off movies, so <laughs> why not? Let's make this <laughs> Handmaid's Tale universe. Get onto it, Margaret. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, with the deepest amount of respect, I say that. <laughs> yeah, genuine thanks to Bruce Miller for coming on the show. And, yeah, as we say, this is a one-off special episode to give it the gravitas I think it warrants. And uh, we resume regular podcasting very soon where we will be recapping Oh, my God. Episode 12. Not long to go now. Not long to go now. What are we going to do without it? So thank you for listening. Um, we hope that one was was a bit of a treat, a bit of a bonus this season. And thank you, Heidi and Natalie, for being here to pose those questions. I'm sure Sana is kicking herself. <laughs> I know. Poor Sana. Over in Canada. Sorry about that. Yeah, we, we always love reading your theories and your reactions on Twitter. So use the hashtag EyesOnGilead. That's how we track it. If you want to reach out on Twitter, you can find me at AnythingButFifi. Natalie, where can we find you? I'm at Natalie Hambly. Haiti. At Haiti Island. And feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from as well. Helps other people find the show. And Bruce Miller might be reading too. I did give a little tease at the start, but we've got some news. For the end of the season, we are going to be doing a season finale recap as a live show in Sydney. Sorry (laughs) for those interstate or overseas, but we're going to be doing a live podcast in Sydney on Sunday, August 18. Follow the hashtag EyesOnGilead for details. Venue to be announced very soon. Yeah, keep the afternoon of Sunday, August 18 free. It's a great chance to meet with your fellow obsessives and uh, we'll go over the highs and lows and um, Lydia backstories of season three. It's going to be amazing. For more Handmaid's coverage, uh, you can head to SBS Guide where we've got recommendations for other things to watch as you await the next episode of The Handmaid's Tale, which is just around the corner. Speaking of which, new episodes of The Handmaid's Tale Season 3, what's left of them, premiere every Thursday on SBS and at SBS On Demand. Eyes on Gilead is produced by me, Fiona Williams, with editing and mixing by Jeremy Walmot. You don't own me, I not your property, so take your dirty Until next time.
Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> <laughs>